now and open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be um, together this morning. It's great to uh, have some of you here in the room today. And uh, great to have you folks watching at home. Some of you look fantastic in your Easter pajamas. Very nicely done. Rob Peters, I'm talking to you. And and, uh, whatever you're cooking, it smells good too. I'm smelling some roasted chicken coming from the Peters household and some ham coming from the Trons household. So on to 2 o'clock, Sandy, 4 o'clock. All right. Got that out of the way. So. So we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 24 uh, together this morning. And, um, you know, we could go so many places, right? We could go so many places in Scripture to talk about the resurrection, to see the resurrection. We saw it uh, near the end of Isaiah 53 a few weeks ago, certainly any of the four Gospels. And that's kind of one of the unique things about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called uh, synoptic Gospels because much of what they talk about is is similar or the same. And so that's why you read John's gospel, and you're like, oh, that has stories in it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And that's, that's exactly right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very much uh, the similar in their gospels, and then John is different. But there's some things where they tell all the same story, and the resurrection is one of those things. That's how important it is. And, of course, we began with 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. A few years ago, we used Revelation chapter 1 to talk about the resurrection. I mean, we, you can just literally go anywhere in the Bible and relate it to Christ, relate it to the cross, and relate it to the resurrection as well. And that's, that's a great thing. But this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. And, and the scene set before us, really, right, is that first resurrection morning. That's where chapter 24, verse 1 begins. But... I think we need to back up just a smidge, just, just to meet some of the characters who are going to play a major role this morning. So if you found Luke 24, back up to verse 23, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 23, verse 55, and here's what it says. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So I love it that the first group of characters that we meet on resurrection morning are a group of women. They're women who had followed Jesus in his ministry, taking time at times to serve him. They are women we found out at the end of chapter 23, excuse me, who when Joseph and Nicodemus remove the body of Jesus and bury it, none of the disciples, none of the male disciples are anywhere to be found. But there's a group of women there. And they're watching to see what tomb he's buried in. And it even tells us at the end of chapter 23, they, uh, at the end of verse 55, they're even watching to see how his body was laid. And then they go home and, and really as quickly as they can, because it's almost sundown and it's almost the Sabbath. And once the Sabbath rolls around, they can do no work. So they go home as quickly as they can and they put together a mixture of spices 
and fragrant oils. And so the first opportunity they get as chapter 24 opens, they're on their way now to the tomb. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus had done the best they could. The Gospels tell us that Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the the body of Jesus in linen. But they were in a hurry and they were in a rush and they were honoring of him, I have no doubt, and and all of those things. Um, but, But they were men wrapping presents, wrapping a gift, if you will, you know, Um, and some things just require a lady's touch, all right? They didn't have time to gather spices. They didn't have time to gather ointment and the things that or oils and the things that it talks about there. So these women now on their way to the tomb as chapter 24 opens are coming to seek Jesus probably in their minds one last time. But not only are they coming to seek Jesus one last time, they're coming to seek Jesus one last time in order to serve Jesus one last time. But there's a problem. There's a problem that they're aware of. There's a, a, it, it's a big problem to them because, as it tells us um, uh, in, in the other Gospels, there is a stone that has been rolled across the tomb. And, and you know, sometimes I wonder, because Luke doesn't tell us, what did the ladies talk about on the way to the tomb? I don't think it was a time for uh, village gossip. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't really think that they were having a conversation about what they had prepared for the Passover dinner or for their Sabbath meal the day before. In fact, Matthew's gospel, I believe it is, or Mark's, uh, one or the other, tells us that the only thing we know that they talked about was this, who's going to roll away the stone? Because that's how big of a problem it was for them. It didn't matter how many ladies gathered together from this group, and we'll see uh, later on in verse 10, I think it is, what some of their names were. And, And it doesn't matter that they got there. They knew that they needed somebody to roll the stone away. They wanted to seek Jesus. They wanted to serve Jesus, both of those things, one last time. But they also realized that there was a large obstacle in their way from doing so, or so they thought, right? Because we know the story. In fact, we're told in the very next verse of Luke chapter 24, this time verse 2, it says, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They didn't have to ask for help. I'm not sure who they would have asked for help. Maybe, maybe the Roman soldiers who had been stationed there, but they are actually, according to the other gospels, they're passed out on the ground at that point. Actually, it says at the end of one of the Gospels, it says they, they, uh, when the stone got rolled away and the angel came and all of that, they fell over as dead men. So the man who had been dead was alive, and the one in the tomb, and the ones outside the tomb who had been alive are now passed out as if they're dead. So they weren't dead, but it's kind of comical what's going on there. So maybe that's who they were going to ask. Certainly Peter, John, James, any of the other disciples, they're not around to And so they've got this problem, but when they get there, they find that someone has already rolled the stone away. Now, we know that an angel rolled the stone away. The other Gospels tell us that. But we understand that the angel didn't do that on his own authority, did he? Whose authority did he do it on? We did it on God's authority. So we can rightly say God rolled away the stone. Now, let's understand something. God didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. All right? Jesus isn't in there for three days like, hello, somebody, help me. No, wait, he's, he's risen. He's gone. 
he didn't roll, God didn't roll the stone away so somebody could get out. God rolled the stone away so people could see in and even go in, as we'll see this morning. And think about that for a minute. The stone was an obstacle. And sometimes when you and I have a desire to seek Jesus, there is a large, immovable to us obstacle in the way. But when we're going to seek Jesus, God is going to take care of that obstacle. We think, oh, I I really want to seek Jesus, but I can't because this. God will take care of that thing. And the same thing is true when you and I seek Jesus and and seek to serve Jesus. Well, I really want to serve more, but there's this thing in the way, this obstacle that's kind of holding me back, and I'm not really sure. Listen, God will take care of that. If our heart's desire is to seek Jesus, God will remove every obstacle in the way to do so. Every stone that needs to be rolled away, if you will. If our desire is to serve Jesus more, God will remove every obstacle that we use as a reason not to be able to do that. He'll take care of that. He still moves stones. God still rolls stones away when we look to seek him and when we look to serve him. But I want to add one more in there. So when we're seeking Jesus, there's one more there's one more stone, if you will, that God likes to deal with. In fact, it needs to be dealt with in some ways even before we can seek Jesus and and really definitely before we serve Jesus. And that's the stone that you and I have in our chest. You think, well, that's kind of weird. That sounds like a medical condition. No, it's not a medical condition, but it is a spiritual condition. In, in uh, Zechariah, I'm just going to switch to this Bible for, for one second, not because it's bigger print, but because I like the way this reads. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12, it says this, talking about the Israelites, they made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Did you catch the first part of that verse? They made their hearts like a rock. Now, that's different than what we sometimes hear today because some people say, well, I don't seek Jesus because, you know, uh, God has done things in my life and, and uh, he's hardened me against him. Uh, there's others who say, well, well, I, I kind of sort of seek Jesus and, and maybe I would look to serve him, but, but I have my reasons for not doing it. And all of those reasons for, both, for not doing both of those things go back to having a hard heart. Now, there is a place in the Old Testament where we can read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you guys remember that? Before the Israelites are released from... But do you know what it says before that? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Several times. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it changes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's a change there. God doesn't initiate hardened hearts. God breaks hardened hearts. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, just like we read in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. The people hardened their own hearts to hearing from the Lord. That's that's the primary obstacle that God wants to remove. Really, maybe as part of seeking Jesus, definitely before seeking Jesus, it's the the rock that needs to be rolled away. It's It's the hardness that needs to be taken care of in order for salvation to take place. And we need to acknowledge, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not God hardening my heart. It's me hardening my heart as he's tried to reach me, as he's tried to speak to me. 
In the Old Testament, of course, as Zechariah 7.12 mentions, it's through the former prophets. That's what it says there. So Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of these different ones. And there were people who heard what they said and they hardened their heart and they hardened their heart and they hardened their heart. God desires to do something different. In Ezekiel chapter um, 26, no, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that amazing? Because I don't know about you, but but what Scripture here is telling us, I believe, is that when our hearts are hard towards God, it's not us that can do anything about it. It's just responding to God. God, my heart is hard. My heart is hard, and so I am not seeking you. My heart is hard, and so I am not looking to serve you, Lord. My heart is hard, and I'm not saved. And God can take that heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. A heart that beats for him. A new heart as it says in Ezekiel 36.26. And a new spirit. That's what he puts in us. See that's what motivated these women that morning. Their hearts had been changed. Jesus had changed their lives. Jesus had changed their lives by changing their hearts. And now they're coming to the tomb. They're coming to seek him. They're coming to serve him one last time. Their big problem has now been taken care of. Do you ever have those times in life where one problem is taken care of and another one pops up? That's annoying, isn't it? You know, you just get one thing fixed and something else breaks, right? Or you just take care of one issue at work and another one pops up. You just get one kid settled down and the other one starts going. And so that's where we are at here now in Luke chapter 24 because verse 3 tells us, then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. There's the new problem. (laughs) We're coming to uh, anoint him. We're coming to kind of finish off giving him a proper burial. We think the problem is that the stone is going to be in the way, but somehow the stone has been rolled out of the way. So now it makes sense that we have access to the body of Jesus. They expected to find the body of Jesus there. They even get inside the tomb, it says in verse 3. They went in, and then they realized, because they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And watch what verse 4 says. It says in verse 4, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. That was their reaction. Greatly perplexed. That's not that's a cool word, perplexed. But that's not one we use in our everyday vocabulary, right? How you doing? I'm kind of perplexed today, actually, you know. And what it literally means is this. They had no clue how to react. They didn't know what to do. What was Jesus's body be, not being there? Was that a good thing or was it a bad thing? And and they're wrestling with They're wrestling with the resurrection. That's what's going on. They're wrestling with the resurrection. They're not leaning yet one way or the other. They're just greatly perplexed by it. And in the seconds, uh, because I think it was no more than that, in the seconds that that is going on, look what happens next, verse 4. And it happened, verse 4 begins again, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, 
Two men stood by them in shining garments. And then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. So I love this because God doesn't leave them hanging there at the tomb. They're greatly perplexed. They're wondering, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? We can read in the other Gospels that as the women eventually take off, Mary Magdalene kind of hangs back a little bit, and she has a conversation. She begins a conversation with somebody that she actually believes is the gardener. That's who she thinks it is. She says, you know, can you tell me where the body's been moved to? And that kind of a thing. And so, uh, but, but God doesn't leave them hanging as they're there wrestling with the resurrection, as they're thinking things through. God sends literally two men, two angels to speak to them. And I love that. Because angels, they're just messengers. I love it that when you and I are trying to work through things having to do with our faith, when you and I are trying to, to wrestle maybe with different things concerning God and concerning Christ and who he was and what he did, or even just how our faith plays out in April of 2020, that God will send people into our lives. They're not angels necessarily, but they're definitely messengers. They're definitely people that God takes and uses to speak things that, that we need to hear into our lives. And that's what he's doing even at the tomb as they're greatly perplexed. And, of course, we see what the angels say to them there in verse uh, 5. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. What what a funny thing to say in a cemetery. Because when you go to a cemetery, most of the people there are dead, Right? Maybe if it's the Granary Cemetery next to Park Street Church in Boston, there's tourists in there looking at the different things. But most of them, you know, it's here lies the body of John Jones or here lies the body of, you know, Jane Jones. Or if your name's John or Jane Jones, I'm not trying to say anything. Just, you know, using that as an example. But here at this tomb, all it could say is here's the body of, well, actually, here's nobody, (laughs) right? I mean, that's what it would have to say at Jesus' tomb. And so they say to them, you know, Uh, They tell them not to be afraid. No, excuse me. They tell them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They're they're hinting at them that Jesus' body hasn't been moved. Nobody's taken it. Nobody's stolen it. He's actually alive. And in a minute, they're going to remind them of Jesus' own words. The angels are going to remind the women of Jesus' own words. But it's this line here, guys, that should mean so much to us. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. This is what we hold on to, as we said earlier in the prayer. This is what we hold on to for our own faith, for our own walks with Christ. it's It's what makes Christianity so real. Christianity without Easter Sunday, Christianity without the resurrection, means that our religious leader that had a large following for about three and a half years died. And that just puts him in the same class as Muhammad and Confucius and, and uh, 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 I can't think of the guy's name who started Hinduism and Buddhism and all of these different things. But it's the tomb, it's the empty tomb that changes everything. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. You know, the same is true for you and I, and I don't mean sometime in the future, like we were talking about from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, spiritually speaking, what the Bible teaches is that spiritually, resurrection has already happened for us. 
Let me show you a different passage of Scripture that talks a little bit about this. It's in Ephesians. So if you're in Luke, then you've got uh, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. So big, all those are all big ones. That's what I'm trying to say. So you can grab a handful of pages and start heading towards the back of your Bibles. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we're just going to look at like three verses from Ephesians chapter 2 that, that tell us the symbolic spiritual meaning of Christ rising from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, so, so if we say to somebody, hey, you, you're, you're dead, but Christ will, God will make you alive through Christ. No, I'm not dead. I'm living and breathing. I can still feel the breath on my hand. And, and uh, what are you talking about? I'm dead. Look at what it says there. You and I were dead spiritually, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. We, we were, and it's a famous saying, right? Dead man walking, right? That's what we were. We're dead walking around. Not the walking dead, all right? That's a TV show that's pretty dark, okay? But dead, dead man walking. So, and, and God made us alive. And you, who made, you, he made alive, verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then watch verse um, uh, 4. It says of the same chapter, Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see a key word there? It's together, right? That this is not something that, that just Jesus went through for just Jesus. Jesus went through this for us as well. That even before we die and are with the Lord, or even before the rapture takes place, our spiritual deadness, it can be dealt with and can be gone. When Christ died for sin, it's as if we died for our sin. When Christ rose from the dead, it's as if we rose from the dead together, together, together. So very much so, people who have not tasted death have death on the inside of them because we're all sinners who are in need of a Savior. And Christ is the one God, through Christ, is the one who comes, changes our hearts, new heart, new spirit, from death to life, spiritually now. Physically later, but spiritually now. Now we go back to Luke chapter 24 again. And we see, we pick up in the middle of these angels speaking. In verse 6, he, they have just said, He is not here, but is risen. Now watch what they say next. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and the third day rise again. Listen, this is one of the ways that you can tell some, that whether somebody is a messenger of God or not. A messenger of God is going to draw your attention and draw our focus back to the words of Christ. Back to the words of Scripture. Not, not what they say. Right? There's all kinds of people, and you can turn on Channel 23 here in Rainham and see a lot of them, so don't turn on Channel 23 here in Rainham. And, and you can see a lot of them, and they will claim to be messengers of God, but they're not saying Scripture. Uh, th- there's a guy right now, I won't tell you his name, though I really want to, who, who literally in the past couple of weeks uh, 
told his followers that he could blow the coronavirus away, like physically blow it. And on his TV show, oh, it is comical. You guys got to check it out. Just Google it or something to find out who I'm talking about. And, and, and he, on his TV show, he says, coronavirus, be gone. He goes, whoo, whoo, like that, like expecting the corona. And somebody took him doing that on half of the screen. And on the other half of the screen, they put a, a dandelion with the white things on it. And they made it so that when he blew, all the dandelion things floated off, you know. That's about the effect that that guy has on the coronavirus. And he's touting himself as a messenger of God. No, a messenger of God redirects us to the scripture of God. That's the focus. That's the attention. And that's what they do. You even can see it there um, in Luke chapter 24. They quote Jesus in verse 7 as saying, The Son of Man, that was his term for himself, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. In other words, they're reminding the women that Jesus talked about the resurrection. What's so amazing is if you work your way through any of the Gospels, you will see that every time Jesus talked about the crucifixion, he also talked about the resurrection. Every single time. In fact, uh, when he first started talking about it, he would say just in generalities, he would talk about going to Jerusalem and being killed and then rising on the third day. And the deeper he got into his ministry, the more he revealed about what his death was going to be like. He started talking about how he was going to die, the crucifixion. He started talking about it, whose hands it was going to happen at. Just more and more and more details about the crucifixion. But he never talked about the cross without also talking about the empty grave. But the disciples are kind of like you and I used to be, or like our kids sometimes maybe can be, or grandkids or whatever, that we tell them two things and they only hear one. Right? They only hear the first. Hey, I want you to do this and do this. Two hours later. Did you do the two things I asked you to? You only asked me to do one. Uh 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 uh. You only heard one. I asked you to do two. It was like the disciples blocked out that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It was like the women blocked out that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And so the messenger reminds them of Jesus' own words. Watch what happens now when they walk away. Verse 8, very, very short verse, five words. And they remembered his words, Jesus' words. That's another sign of a good messenger, by the way, that when you walk away from the messenger, you're not remembering what the messenger said. You're remembering what the messenger said that redirected you to what the Bible says, to what Scripture says. And they walked away not thinking, do you remember what the angel said to us? No, they walked away remembering the words of Jesus. And now they've got some people to tell. And look what it says in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 9. It says, then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11, minus Judas Iscariot, of course, and to all the rest. And now we find out who some of these women were. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now watch verse 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Wow. What a reaction, right? 
So the women, we see their reaction is they're greatly perplexed. They don't know whether it's good or bad. And there's some people today who think about Jesus and they think about the cross and they think about the tomb and they don't yet quite know what to make of it. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And they're wrestling with that. And God meets them there and brings people in their lives to to hopefully work in such a way to draw them closer to himself. But now, look who it says they're going to talk to. It specifically says they're going to the 11, so we know that's the disciples, and a group of other people with them. Could be as many as 120 of them, perhaps, because that's the number that's in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. But then it actually refers to them as the apostles. Do you see that there? at the end of verse um, 10, who told these things to the apostles. So we know that these guys who are disciples, who are going to become apostles, they're going to come around, but when they were told that Jesus rose from the dead, they thought the women were making it up. They didn't believe. They didn't remember Jesus' words. And it says that the women came and told them everything, which would have included Jesus' words. And so can you imagine just these women... um, Uh, And and anytime you have a group of people who are all trying to tell the same story at once, right? Kind of talking over each other and trying to say to Peter and James and John and the rest of them, and we were there, we went to the tomb, we were going there to do this, and the stone was rolled away, and and then somebody else jumps in and says, and and then we went in, and the body wasn't there, and we were kind of perplexed. I don't know if they used that word or not, but you understand, and all these different things, and then these angels came, and it's like, oh, oh, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, you know, mother of the sons of thunder, the other Mary that's, that's mentioned, and the other women there, just, was, just uh, we don't know what you're getting at. We don't know what your goal is, but don't tell stories like that. Don't make up things like that. Now, these are, these are the disciples who had walked with Jesus for over three years. These are the disciples who know that he was crucified. They were there when he was arrested. And yet, it, when it came to the resurrection, they stopped short temporarily of believing. I got to thinking this week a little bit about that because I'm pretty sure that there's some people today who call themselves Christians, who would tell you that they believe in Jesus. Maybe they would tell you that they believe in his virgin birth, although that's a sketchy area for some people who call themselves Christians. I don't quite know how that matches up. And they'll tell you that they believe Jesus did miracles and died on the cross, but they're not so sure that the resurrection isn't just a story. If somebody who identifies as a Christian doesn't believe in the resurrection, I don't think you're a Christian. I, I hate to put it that way, but I just don't, it's, it's not an idle tale. It's not a made-up story. There was a, there was a group of women who went to the tomb. There was a group of women that this happened to. Uh, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, earlier on than the passage we read, that uh, after the resurrection, Jesus was seen at one point by 500 people at the same time. I mean, if that doesn't convince you, you know what I mean? And then there were even more beyond that. But, but as the disciples sat there, even though God is going to use them, even though they're going to get over their doubt, they're going to get over that, and they're, they're going to be mightily used by God, they're all sitting there in disbelief. That's worse than being perplexed. At least if you're greatly perplexed, you kind of haven't made up your mind yet. You're trying to figure it out. You're kind of wrestling with the resurrection. But they weren't wrestling with it. They, they, they just flat out said, no, you're, you're making up a story. Except for one of them. Actually, except for two. Luke only tells us about one of them. 
Look what it says. The, 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 the first word of verse 12 is huge, right? But, well, that's good. Because we wouldn't want it to end with verse 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. What a horrible way to end for the disciples after the resurrection. But, verse 12 says, Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. What a great word to use. He marveled at it. He, he wasn't greatly perplexed. He wasn't, he wasn't in denial. He didn't not believe. He went and he marveled. But look at what he had to do to move forward from a moment of unbelief to a place where he was marvelously marveling, if I can put it that way. I'm not going to try to say that word ten times in a row, but he was marvelously marveling. Look what he had to do. Number one, verse 12, he had to get up. He had to move. Because if he had stayed hanging out with a bunch of other people who believed that the resurrection was just a fairy tale and the ladies were just making it up, he never would have moved beyond that place himself. He had to move specifically. He had to move away from the people who were expressing unbelief in that moment. He had seen Jesus do that. There's a story where Jesus goes, and I think it's um, Jairus's daughter, uh, but it's definitely a girl, a, a little girl that Jesus heals. When Jesus gets to Jairus's house, the professional mourners are already there because the little girl has died. And Jesus says she hasn't died, she's just asleep. And the people begin mocking Jesus. And so he actually gives a command to move the mockers out. And then he works. And then he moves. And I wonder if Peter got it from there. I wonder if Peter understood from that episode with Jesus, that, that sometimes, uh, sometimes we are surrounded by people who don't believe. Sometimes we are surrounded by people who doubt. Sometimes we're even surrounded by people who are mocking something. And sometimes what we have to do is move aside the mockers. Or if we can't move them aside, we need to move away from them. And so, so that requires action. And we see the action as Peter arose, he, he, he had to move, he had to get up and, and get going. It says there in verse 12 that he ran uh, to the tomb. We don't necessarily have to run somewhere, physically speaking, but then look what he does next. And it says, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So he had to, he had to move and when he got to that place where his faith could be bolstered, where his, his doubt could be dealt with, you see what he had to do to get into the tomb? He had to stoop. He had to lower himself to get to the place, to see it for himself, to boost his faith. I love that. I love that. I love that as we're walking through life, there sometimes are even Christians around us. 
well-meaning Christians, people who are trying to walk with Christ like we're walking with Christ, but then we hear about something that God is doing, and sometimes we begin to split into two different groups. One of us, what, what, one, one group, so to speak, is the group who says, oh, I'm not so sure about that. I, I'm not so sure God can heal that marriage. I'm not so sure God can provide for you the way you're talking about. I'm not so sure God is going to take care of that person physically. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I'm not. Don't those people sometimes drive you crazy? Like everything is questioned. They doubt everything. You know, it's, I don't know what they're thinking, what the first thought is that goes through their mind when they get out of bed in the morning and their feet hit the floor. You know, I doubt today is going to be a good day. What a way to start your day, right? What a bummer, really. What a bummer. And, and sometimes we have to move away from those people. Wait a minute, you said they're Christians. Yes. Some of us as Christians are going through life, going through Christianity, doubting God. Making his arm too short, as it says in the Old Testament. Making his hands too powerless, as it talks about in the Old Testament. We, we are limiting God, even as we're following him, we're putting limits on him. And there is a place for, for, for that's one group. There's a place for the other group to say, you know what, I need to move away from that. I need to arise. I need to run. I need to just get away from those whose doubts may drag me into doubting as well. I don't want to doubt. I want to trust. I want to believe. I want to move forward. And so we go to our own tomb, if you will. We go to that place where we want to see our faith bolstered. But what needs to happen there is humility. That's what has to happen there. What needs to happen there is stooping down is lowering ourselves. We can't get there and say, God, here I am. Show me what I came here to see. I'm not like them. I didn't stay back there doubting. I'm here. I'm, I'm believing. I want to believe. I'm ready to believe. Here I am. Like, that's proud, right? That's pride. No, rather we need to say, you know what? There's a place to move away from those whose, whose doubts of God, even as Christians, may drag me down. There's a way, there's a place for me to move away from them. And when I get to where God wants to boost my faith, I need to make sure that I'm not boasting when I get there. I need to make sure that I'm stooping down. I need to make sure that I'm humbling myself. I need to make sure that I'm lowering myself. And that is what leads to marveling in the work of God. Because there's nothing left. When we've stooped down, when we've lowered ourselves, when we've humbled ourselves, it's so he can be lifted high. And we, like Peter, can walk away from this, this empty tomb that has now boosted his faith, marveling at what God can do. May that be where we are this morning, guys. May we say, well, no, we can't really relate to the women. We're not greatly perplexed. Hopefully, we're not still wrestling with the resurrection. If you're hearing my voice, no matter when you're hearing it, or where you are when you're hearing it, and you're wrestling with the resurrection, can I tell you something? Keep wrestling, but be aware that God is going to send some people into your life, some messengers. I don't think two angels are going to show up and you're going to fall on the ground, all right? And I know I kind of look like an angel, but uh, not really one. And God can, God can use anyone. He can use any messenger. If you're wrestling with a point of faith when it comes to God, keep your ears open because God is going to send messengers to speak to you. May, may we be able, in those moments where we are greatly perplexed, may we have 
may we wrestle with those and move beyond there and grow in our faith. And certainly we don't want to be like the disciples, though they'd be greatly used by God here. They have a tremendous amount of doubt. We often blame Thomas, right? Oh, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas, like that's his first name and his middle name is Thomas, you know? No, no, he's just falling in line with the rest of the disciples. They're all doubting, except for one or two of them who get up and move, move away from the doubters, acknowledging, hey, I've got to be apart from you guys for a little bit. No offense, okay? It's not because you smell funny or whatever, all right? I just need to be away from you guys for a little bit, and I need to get to a place of humility, of lowering myself, of stooping down, because I want to be in a place where I'm marveling at what God is doing. May that be where we are today. Let's pray before Tom comes and leads us in a hymn of assurance. Heavenly Father, on this Resurrection Sunday, we are excited about the empty grave, and we thank you, Lord, that that the story, the real story, the true story, is found in the pages of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you make the characters involved in the resurrection relatable to us, relatable to us. Who among us as Christians doesn't want to seek Jesus? Who among us as believers doesn't want to serve Jesus? And so, Lord, we we see ourselves in those women who did what they had to do in order to be able to do what they wanted to do, to seek and serve their Savior, just in case it was for the last time ever. May we have that same heart's desire. We can come up, Lord, with all kinds of excuses not to seek you, all kinds of excuses not to serve you, but that's all they are. They're excuses. Because, Lord, when we seek you, we'll be found by you. When we seek to serve you, you allow us to serve you in some capacity. And if there are stones in the way and rocks that need to be rolled, you will roll them out of the way so that we can, in truth, seek and serve you. Lord, today, this Easter Sunday, we thank you that the the rock that was in our chests, our hearts, that we made hard through sin, through trespasses, through iniquities, that you took that you took that hard heart that we had and you, you broke it to pieces. You took it from our chest. You gave us a heart of flesh, a new heart and a new spirit that you put within us. Thank you so much. And Lord, now as we walk this walk of faith, there may be times when we come across some of the things that you're doing in this world and we scratch our heads and we are greatly perplexed. We don't know if it's a good thing. We don't know if it's a bad thing because we don't quite know what you're doing. Lord, may those be awesome moments of wrestling for us as we seek you for what you're doing, as we wonder. Lord, would you send messengers and give us ears to hear them so that we may follow the path that you have for us. May the words that we remember most be the words of Scripture, not the words of those messengers that may be other words. Lord, may we never find ourselves in a place of doubt. May we never find ourselves sitting in a group of people, be they 11 or 120, who are together exchanging doubt, passing it around the room almost, so that when they hear, so that when we hear a story of a miracle, we just say, ah, it's just a story. It's not actually true. Lord, may that not be us. 
And if we ever find ourselves, Lord, where doubt is creeping in, whether it's coming from our own hearts, Lord, or whether it's coming from the environment around us, even amongst well-meaning Christians, Lord, may we arise and move away and come to a place of humility, come to a place of lowering ourselves, of stooping down, so that we, like Peter, can once again marvel at the wonderful work that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.